Embedded in the market. Sponsored by Tokyo. Hi there, and welcome to Embedded in the Market. Today, uh, we are speaking with Will Hennon of Revolut. How are you today, Will? I'm very good, Frank. How are you? I'm well, thank you. So very why good. don't you tell us just a little bit of a summary about what Revolut does and what's what's your role at Revolut? Sure. Um, so Revolut is an all-in-one financial super app um, for both businesses and retail use cases. Um, we work with many thousands of uh, thousands of businesses globally and somewhere in the, the neighborhood of 35 million retail users, uh, predominantly in, in Europe, but expanding that footprint. And, you know, we, we entered the market many, not many years ago, around 2016, I think, as a you know proposition for individuals who are traveling with exposure to multiple currencies. Um, offering those users a superior digital experience through the application with superior rates as well. So it, it was a way to sort of take a stab at the margins that were currently being charged by the incumbent financial institutions. And on the back of that, the growth has been tremendous. You know, it's the fastest growing fintech in Europe. And we just add more and more products into the suite, both for businesses and consumers, to achieve that goal of being the sort of all-in-one all place to manage your your individual or business finances. Well, congratulations. That sounds very nice. And Thank you there are, if I'm not mistaken, the global head of embedded finance, correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. So then what is your role specifically involving embedded finance? And what does the concept of embedded finance mean to you and your role? This role is focused primarily on commercializing and bringing uh, different solutions to market via our API integrations, our banking as a service solutions, and our embedded finance products. And what that means is essentially allowing other businesses, so my role is in the B2B remit, um, allowing other businesses to access portions of the Revolut tech stack or financial services stack to power their own organizations with the same uh, might that's behind our application. And, you know, what embedded finance means to me in a larger context is certainly a buzzy word at the moment. It, it intersects a lot with banking as a service and just API integrations in general. And, but it's essentially a channel to different individuals or businesses or markets where people and, and companies can interface with financial services and experience them out in the world outside of a traditional financial setting rather than having to go to a bank to get those those services. For instance, you know, opening a savings account or a wallet or signing up for a loan mm -hmm. with a non-financial institution uh, rather than going directly to a bank. So it's essentially a channel to market and that, that brings the banks out of the, the brick and mortar and is a, a next step in the digitalization that we've seen, you know, so heavily over the past 10 years or so. I'm just looking at some of the notes that we have for the meeting, and I recall that in a previous conversation, you mentioned that uh, financial inclusivity has a long way to go. And I know this is a big topic with you. What's your personal interest in financial inclusion? First of all, why don't we define what financial inclusion is, and then you can tell me what your relationship to it is. Maybe a, a little bit of context about myself is helpful here. So yeah, I started in traditional finance and about 10 years ago at this point when I was living in New York City and I worked for a few years uh, for different banks and then did some consulting for one of the big four um, when I moved to London. 
and spent some time in Berlin um, where I got involved in fintech. I worked at a company called Mambu in the core banking space, which has mm -hmm. since been very successful. I'm at Revolut now and have been for just under a couple of years now, which has been a fantastic next step in that sort of journey. But alongside all of this professional uh, excitement that I got to experience, you know, personal things go on. You know, I had a little boy just yep. two years ago last week, and maybe that has changed my own gaze to not just profit-driven um, financial services and technology applications, but looking at, you know, banking for good and financial inclusion, the topic we'll get to in a second, um, and just um, how to make this world a little bit better with, with the time I, I plug into my, my career. So I think that's probably where the interest came from, so to say. So it's a very much a personal interest. And I think because of my experience across all these different remits, there's been a lot of insight that I can bring to that personal experience. Financial inclusion, I think, in a nutshell, is just making sure that as many people in the world as possible have access to the same control, uh, provisions, and stability financially as possible. Um, why, so why is that important? Why do you think that's important, Will? Because, I mean... Let's face it, in many places, I'm not going to, I mean, in, in many places and historically, people mm -hmm. have, I mean, banking has certainly been advantageous for many of them personally. It's been advantageous for small businesses, but, uh, you know, many of them were quite happy to just stuff their bills in the mattress. What, yeah. what, what, what's different about this day and age? What are, what, what are the issues that we're facing today that, that make financial inclusivity important? Yeah, well, with inflation rates like we're seeing right now, we know why putting money in the mattress anymore <laughs> isn't 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 the best strategy. Um, exactly. But I think it it starts with having money to put under the mattress to begin with. You know, it's mm. not just about having access to a bank uh, or banking services. It comes down to the fact that people who ac have access to these services have access to tools that help them take control over their finances, either personally or for a small business. And being savvy and included in in that that tool set allows you to generate more capital or more mm -hmm. security with the capital that you do have, which is power in the world that we live in. And you know, the majority of these sort of capitalistic or at least capitalistic socialistic states in in Europe and the Western world and globally, mm -hmm. money helps you run your life the way that is comfortable and 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 safe. So access to those so services are paramount to a lot of people's general well-being. And I think it is almost a trope to say that money is power, but we know it to be relatively true and uh, making sure that people have access to similar tools is, is important. How many people around the world now have access to viable banking? Yeah, so I did a little bit of homework to bring up some stats for our conversation today. Um, you but you've got your the Global Findex survey sort of leading analysis of global financial services and, and inclusion is often referenced in these types of conversations. There's certain figures we can pull from there. The most recent one shows that actually three out of four people globally do have bank accounts. So okay. that's up that's up 50% from over the, roughly over the past 10 years. So from 2011 to 2021, you saw a 50% increase in adults with bank accounts. I think digitalization has driven a ton of this and the COVID period. Yep. saw a lot of people adopting digital banks. So there was actually a spike during that time. So it's not all doom and gloom, but you know, 25% of the world's population is still billion and a half individuals and it's mm -hmm. heavily skewed towards certain um, geographies and certain demographics it's heavily skewed towards women so something like half of those unbanked people tend to be um, women or more than half 
Yep. So it, it's it's a really important problem to solve because while we might be able to say, well, well, three out of four people, three out of four is not bad. When you think about the one out of four and who they actually represent, there's some of the people that need the access to those solutions the most. And that may be based on a number of factors, regardless of culture, um, mm. you know, different different locations of and, and how they're represented. So understanding understanding that we are moving towards giving people greater access to take control of their financial experience, how does embedded finance contribute to or impact financial inclusion? In the context of emerging technologies and digital transformation, how can embedded finance help overcome some of the challenges related to financial inclusion? It's a relatively new topic for a relatively new application, but because it's a procession, like it's mm-hmm. built upon APIs and cloud banking and banking as a service and so on and so forth. We, we know that embedded finance has a role to play in this conversation. Mm-hmm. We also know that more broadly speaking, that technology and digitalization um, in general support financial inclusion and financial wellness when used effectively. So, well, you know, going back to that point, when people have access to their financial services, they have more control over their financial circumstances. Yep. There was a lot of work done in places like Sub-Saharan Africa by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. You know, they invested heavily in mobile devices with mobile payments where they might not have smartphones, but they could you know, send funds on a, on a simple mobile device, thus including them and the ability to transfer money globally. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we know that these types of applications can really help people enter the global economic conversation, so to speak, or just get access to simple banking services. Mm-hmm. And we think about embedded finance being something that could build on top of that. If you do have a- access for a, to a smartphone or you are interacting with other services out there, embedded finance serves as an opportunity to position these additional financial services on uh, beyond payments, so loans, uh, savings accounts, uh, a wallet uh, for those who might not be able to open a full bank account, um, and allows these services to be encountered out there in the world where these people actually are, who might not be interacting with a bank and for a cultural reason or for lack of capital or for lack of access and, and allows them to kind of experience these solutions where they already are. So I guess what I'm saying in a, in a fairly long-winded way at this point <laughs> is the more channels there are and the more opportunities there are for access, theoretically, this makes it easier for people to get access to these services and better finance can be a tool for that. I mean, there are a lot of great examples of B2C initiatives in, in, in Africa. Would corporate embedded finance be another channel to foster financial inclusivity? Yeah, definitely. I think um, inclusivity, again, if we think about it as a form of wealth equality, right? Uh, Wealth is generated by businesses oftentimes. And with with, uh, more solutions and and offerings being present in the market, Mm -hmm. smaller businesses are provided more choice. And choice and competition drives better market conditions for the companies that are adopting those those offerings. This is under the assumption that we're using embedded finance to bring solutions to the market that are actually good for the businesses and the individuals. You know, it has to be done in an ethical way where these solutions are actually superior to what they might encounter otherwise. Sure. And not just an acquisition strategy for anything sort of predatory, right? You wouldn't want to bring a bunch of payday loans through embedded finance solutions through people's, uh, you know, cell phone providers, for instance. Right. right? In the scenario where this is driving good market competition, that's great for small businesses who are competing with large enterprises and incumbents who typically have better access 
to better financial services and huge lines of credit and so on and so forth that skew the odds of, of competition in their favor. That's going to require a lot of, I, I, I won't say coordination, but that, because that would indicate some kind of oversight body, but how about collaboration? Let's let's talk about collaboration between traditional fintech institutions, fintech companies, uh, financial institutions, other stakeholders. Um, mm-hmm. How important is collaboration with regard to meaningful progress in financial inclusion? Yeah, I mean, collaboration is super important um, for these types of initiatives. Uh, I think, you know, the three major parties are your financial institution themselves, who are oftentimes providing the underlying core services, which then get brought to market by the second party, which would be your fintech companies, right? Not all these fintechs are, are licensed or are either as payment institutions or as banks or organizations that are able to hold other, other people's money or the business's money. So they're reliant on those banks oftentimes. Mm-hmm. And then the third are these conscientious organizations, whoever they might be. You know, and if we're, we're talking about using embedded finance as a tool for some sort of greater good, somebody has to have the idea to do this, not just for profit, right? Somebody needs right. to look at this, like, you know, go back to the Gates Foundation and say, hey, these, these mobile devices and these, this ability to send a text message to somebody could be really good for people who don't have the ability to send their money anywhere. Somebody has to look at embedded finance, maybe an NGO or a charity Mm -hmm. uh, or the ethical department within a bank. And you are seeing, you know, a lot more of that these days, you know, Mm -hmm. banking for good, sustainable banking, impact investments, you know, whatever. Some portion of these people who want to do something good for the world have to leverage the tech stack to do that. So that's where the, the collaboration really comes to life, I think. Even so, I mean, I can see that that third component is certainly important for fostering or being the champion of financial inclusivity and mm-hmm. leveraging leveraging those other two parties. But even so, I can see that embedded finance, corporate embedded finance as a tool between companies, financial institutions, and with companies among smaller partners, for example, large companies mm-hmm. that want to provide a good digital embedded finance solution to SMEs. Even so, that improves the, well, in theory, in theory, it would improve the economic situation of a, of a location or a market, which is pretty much good for everyone, hopefully, hopefully for the users involved as well. So even, even if that third component isn't necessarily there, do you think that embedded finance can be good for financial inclusivity? No, definitely. I think they're like the breaking up of banks into little components that are driven through technical integrations is Mm -hmm. is good for including more businesses and startups and scale-ups or just an individual good idea. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's good for them. I think there is also an understanding in these organizations that are providing modern services to do so in a way that drives a good digital experience. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, part of the digital experience is that it's not a pain to work with. You know, we know that that's important to people, that they, they like a, a slick banking app. But the other part of it is that it's actually a good service, you know, with, right. with, with good good support around it and a, and a good pricing model. It's cost effective. It's, it's, a, it's a good proposition. So it inherently has the capacity to drive efficiency in mm-hmm. smaller businesses. And I think, you know, the more people that adopt APIs and embedded finance and banking as a service or just working with financial services in a more modern way is good for economic growth across the board. Uh, and as long as enough people are included in that economic growth, that's a step towards inclusion in and of itself. Exactly. Is financial inclusivity or is financial inclusion equatable with financial democratization? Are they the same thing? Are they different? Are they interdependent? How do you see that relationship? 
they're both ways of saying um, something about the inequality that exists in mm -hmm. most places between people with lots of money and mm -hmm. people without much money at all. And we see that not just in sort of the developing world, not by a long shot. You know, I'm, I'm based in the UK now. I'm from the US. You see it hugely in wealthy Western countries. Financial democratization, I guess, ultimately means that everybody has a relatively equal piece of the pie, mm -hmm. uh, whereas financial inclusion is, is focusing on just getting people included and away from the most extreme disparities, such as not having a bank account or right. not having any emergency funds to rely upon if something happens. Yeah. Democratization is a long way away, right? Like banks, for instance, want a lot of people to use their services so long as they're profitable. But to, to, to fully democratize finance globally, that there wouldn't really be need for banks in that scenario, right? Because banking is based upon the premise that one group has a lot of capital mm -hmm. upon which they can make some more capital and sort of lend it to people and make more capital and, and so on and so forth. So I don't think anybody's going to be getting behind that anytime soon. Banks have periodically worked against the goal of democratization or inclusion by skewing ease of access to certain individuals versus others. You know, and if you think about it's not a historic issue. If you just think about getting a mortgage in, in a lot of wealthy countries as a contract worker or a waged employee versus mm -hmm. having a salaried job, mm -hmm. uh, we know it's, it's much more difficult. And we know that certain portions of our society have easier access to full-time salary positions uh, while others um, are more reliant on, on wage work. And we know that without being able to get on that property buying ladder, it's very difficult to step up the rungs of that sort of financial wellness and investment ladder. In a sense, they're the ultimate risk manager. And mm. they, they tend to have, you know, as you were just discussing now in the example you've given, they tend to have a one size fits all risk management system for everyone and it's easier for them to blanket. So do you think then that the status quo that's been affected by many, you know, incumbent banks and financial institutions over the course of a very long time indeed in our, in our, in our history, do you mm -hmm. think that they feel threatened by embedded finance or do you think that they embrace it or do you think that they're going to change or what do you think is going to happen with incumbents then? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think we can relate it back to a few years ago when the challenger banks like Revolut or the neobanks or whatever you want to call them, the digitally native banks like Revolut and others uh, entered the market. I think there's kind of like a, a, a life cycle where first they're not maybe taken that seriously by the incumbents yeah. and they're, then they're sort of perceived as a small threat. Then they're starting to be perceived as an existential threat, maybe for certain certain aspects of their business. And then eventually something to embrace and work alongside and to either mimic or partner with by, you know, stepping up whatever portion of the incumbent banking offering is lacking compared to these new things that are entering the market. So you see lots of banks with APIs. You see regulation in uh, places like Europe that enforce access to those banking APIs. And it's, it's obviously becoming a part of the DNA, even for the most traditional players. Embedded finance, I don't, I don't think will be any different. I think at first it will be seen as something that needs to be adopted and kept up with. Yeah. Um, and also a big opportunity for the banks, because going back to that idea that a lot of the fintechs providing access to embedded finance solutions are leveraging the core banking services of traditional financial institutions. Maybe they're payment rails or a loan um, from, from them that's being offered them out in the 
daily encounters of, of the consumers, it's sort of a double-edged sword. And I think it's just going to be another one of those things that everybody has to make a part of their working model moving forward. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like it sounds like the uh, reconciliation of the five stages of grief. From a broader perspective, just to just to finish up, from a broader mm-hmm. perspective, how does promoting financial inclusion through embedded finance contribute to economic development? We touched on that a little bit about how embedded finance can, you know, offer a safe ecosystem for companies to work alongside other companies, SMEs, entrepreneurs, individuals. How do you think, on an individual and a societal level? How do you think embedded finance contributes to financial Yeah, at the individual level, I think we've discussed a little bit that more access to more financial propositions, so long as they are, um, you know, fostering healthy competition mm-hmm. uh, and providing reasonable solutions for people who need them, and that that's a good thing for the individual, right? If you don't have access to financial services or you have access to really limited financial services and embedded finance can be a way for you to have access to a superior offering, that's a win for financial inclusion. The more control you have over your finances, the more of a fighting chance you have out there against others who have a lot of control through their finances. I think um, in in the sort of business to business use case, it's it's, it's very similar, mm-hmm. um, and again empowers smaller businesses to either embed financial services into their own propositions right. or to access embedded finance propositions in a, in a more streamlined way that brings them a competitive advantage versus incumbent enterprises and, and, and plays back to that choice and access helps drive opportunity, especially for those who have less of it at the start. Just as a small aside, that's more that's more the use case that we've seen at Tokyo, where mm-hmm. we have larger companies who aren't replacing banks, but at the end of the day, they tend to know their customers a lot better than yeah. a financial institution does. So working alongside SMEs, uh, any number of them, they can offer financing, they can offer lines of credit, they can offer um, easier and faster invoicing services uh, than perhaps a traditional financial institution would. So even though the companies aren't necessarily becoming banks, uh, they are they are offering bank-like services with more agility and usually with lower risk. Definitely. That seems to be the case. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, that that's a really good point. And I, I think that so long as those businesses who understand their consumer footprints um, mm-hmm. are, are thinking about them in a, in a way that they actually want to provide them a, a useful solution, and I think many businesses today do, default yep. to that mindset, then that, that really helps. That's a way for people to get access to, to superior financial services. And, and then I think it's societally, the last piece you, you touched on, the adoption of these technologies does drive business growth. In my, in my belief, it's a, it's a more efficient way to work. It can be a more cost-effective way to work because the, the companies and the tech companies that are bringing these stacks to market are much leaner than a traditional financial institution. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the, the margins can be passed on to, to their, their ultimate users. But when we think about financial inclusion, you know, we, we started the conversation talking about being banked versus unbanked. This is right. obviously just the extreme example. The gap between very rich and very poor remains the largest barrier to financial inclusion or democratization or whatever you want to call it. And I think if embedded finance can help 
people and businesses who had less opportunity to take more control of their financial lives, help them make some money, help them protect themselves in, in difficult situations. That challenges the status quo to a degree, just like digital banking has done a lot of that um, over the past 10 years and is a necessary step towards the change we need to see in certain systems that has this massive bias of haves versus have-nots. Uh, whatever we can do to tackle it seems like a good thing to me. Will, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been very interesting. Um, a little bit of a different topic from what we're accustomed to in embedded finance, but a welcome one. Thank you very much for your expertise and for joining us for these 20 minutes. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Frank. Yeah, it was, it was great to speak to you today. Thanks a lot, Will.